Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Alex Hoyer. Joseph Pulitzer is a name that continues to loom large in American society. The Pulitzer Prizes honor the best in journalism. He founded the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in 1878, bought the New York World in 1883, and Pulitzer fundamentally changed journalism and the business of newspapers. He's the subject of a film, Joseph Pulitzer, Voice of the People. It premieres at 8 this Friday night on 9 PBS. And with me here to talk about it is Oren Rudowski, the film's director and producer. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Thanks for having me. How did you become interested in this story? Well, uh, the journey began with my co-producer and writer, Bob Seidman, who uh, is a novelist and was working on a book about Pulitzer. But he got stuck, and he thought this should be a documentary film. And we had worked on a film previously called uh, A Life Apart, Hasidism in America many years before. And uh, he, we've been in touch, and uh, he suggested that Pulitzer might be a good topic given uh, the shape that newspapers uh, were in. This is back in 2013. Uh, and then, but I didn't know anything about Joseph Pulitzer, which, hey, is one reason <laughs> maybe to make a film about something. Uh, the other thing that happened is I came across a memoir written by one of his secretaries uh, called Adventures with a Genius. And that book just gave me a window into a man who is kind of hard to get to know because a lot of his public pronouncements or written statements have that grand feeling that people, grand tone that people seem to speak in uh, about 100 years ago. Do you think you would have wanted to do this had he not been difficult to get to know? Well, I think getting, I think what's interesting about a, film personality or somebody you're going to make a film about is is uh, you want to get under the surface of, of what they present to the to the public and you want to get to know the real person and you know the film does that to a certain degree uh, you can never do as much as as you want to but uh, there are other reasons of course yes to make a film about Pulitzer and they became even more evident uh, after the or during the run-up to the 2016 election, when uh, immigra immigration and issues about immigrants came to the fore, when the news media was being attacked uh, and continues to be attacked, uh, fake news was a term that Pulitzer I found in an article he wrote in 1902. So there are a lot of reasons I wanted to make this film. Uh, foremost the political ones, but it helps to have a character who is just a fascinating human being. Immigration is part of Pulitzer's story. Certainly, he grew up in Hungary. Can you describe the conditions that he grew up in? Well, he grew up uh, in Hungary along the Romanian border uh, in, a, in a small town, um, and he grew up in a family that was uh, relatively well off. His father was a merchant, but of the of his nine siblings, eight of them died from various childhood illnesses. So, so life was pretty difficult. He he was born in 1847, one year before the 1848 revolutions, which swept over Europe. Something else I knew nothing about, and 
happens to be a major turning point in, in European history. And I think something that really shaped him, uh, it was they were progressive revolutions against monarchies, and they all failed in over, I believe, over 50 countries. Uh, so, so that history, I think, shaped him very much. Some of his relatives apparently were involved in the revolution. Uh, on the side of the revolutionaries. And uh, many famous Americans, including Carl Schurz, who of course uh, ended up coming to St. Louis, uh, were revolutionaries as well. And that's one of the reasons, or maybe the only reason, Carl Schurz left uh, at that time. How did uh, Joseph Pulitzer's experience in childhood influence him for the rest of his life? Yeah, well, you know, the record is pretty meager, so it's not like at a certain point, you know, I've read five uh, biographies, and many of them disagree about, about some of the details of his life. But I think the 1848 revolution, the fact that he was Jewish, I'm sure, influenced him. Uh, he was an educated person. He spoke several languages before he came to the States, but not, not English. Uh, I think he, he wanted to escape home because his mother remarried and apparently he did not get along with, with his, her new husband. So I think uh, he knew something about the Civil War. There were recruiters who came uh, throughout to Europe to find recruits because wealthy American, children of wealthy Americans uh, didn't necessarily want to get killed or fight in the Civil War. So that, that's how he came here. He had weak eyes. I think, you know, all of this uh, speaks of somebody, you know, th that, that has been through trauma himself, losing all those siblings and his father at a very young age. It speaks, the fact that he's educated means that he knows what's going on in the world. And, and his progressive politics, I believe, were, were shaped in that atmosphere. And then coming here uh, uh, to fight, uh, or coming here right at the end of the Civil War, because I don't know if he actually fought. 1864, uh, right. Yeah, I think shaped, shaped his knowledge of, of this country, and, and he was a great champion of democracy and, uh, and, and, and of this country's. So he did serve during the Civil War. My take on it is that it was probably service that was mostly unremarkable. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely. He was in the Lincoln Cavalry he, um, with a German-speaking German unit, but apparently played more chess than, uh, than, you know, and probably learned how to shoot. But, but beyond that, uh, he, didn't, he didn't encounter, maybe there were skirmishes, but nothing much beyond that. He was lucky. And then after the Civil War, he uh, wound up in St. Louis. I noted that his first paid job was shoveling coal on a barge, and then he later had a job burying people who had died from cholera. Uh, when he came to St. Louis, how did he integrate himself into the community? Yeah, what what uh, in every town or, or in many big cities, there was a mercantile library, as there was here in, in, in St. Louis. And I think he, he learned to read, but there, there were books there, and there was the company of young men who, uh, who he wanted to get to know. And, and so that's, that's where I think he met uh, Carl Schurz. Apparently, uh, people 
played chess in those days, and, and Pulitzer was a very good chess player, and it's probably apocryphal, but apparently he suggested a move and and people shirts wanted to know and who he was and they engaged in conversation and he he had a gift of gab he was a good storyteller so i think working for a newspaper seemed like a natural thing and carl shirts was uh was uh the editor of the uh the westlich post mm-hmm. and uh, when he integrated himself into this community uh, pulitzer when he came to st louis was poor but class wasn't as big of an issue when he went to these social circles. Yeah, well, I think I think my sense my sense of it is, and again, some of this is uh, apocryphal. But but my my sense is that people uh, who were educated, y- you know, you could walk into anybody's office and and engage them in conversation. I'm I've I've visited countries that are. Uh, relatively smaller or whatever. And, you know, as a filmmaker, maybe you get entree into into people's offices. But I, I think at the time in, in, in the U.S., you could do that with virtually anybody, whereas now even going to the mayor's office, you're not going to be able to get into a conversation with them. So, so there was fluidity. I think there was class fluidity. And, and socioeconomically, I think he was of the same class as people like Carl Schertz. And why St. Louis? Well, St. Louis had a German-speaking population. He he first went to New York, and apparently he supposedly was um, couldn't find a job, and he was kicked out of one establishment after another. Was sleeping on park benches, and some somebody wisely told him he might he might do better uh, a little further to the west. And St. Louis was certainly a town that was booming at that point. Well, well, one should point out that uh, at the time that Pulitzer came to St. Louis, it wasn't clear. It might have been clear that New York maybe was going to be the first American city, but St. Louis was considered a possible second to it. And certainly nobody thought Chicago necessarily was going to be that city. We have a clip from the film about Joseph Pulitzer's years in St. Louis. Joseph taught himself law and proved to be a natural reporter with a gift for gab and a feel for investigative journalism. Passionate about politics, he wrote exposés that uncovered St. Louis corruption. He's at this ward meeting in which they're choosing a candidate to run for the state legislature. While he's out of the room, they all think it's a great joke. They nominate Joseph Pulitzer. Pulitzer accepted the nomination, but he did not treat it as a joke. Pulitzer did not treat it as a joke. He was only 22 years old at the time. The politicians in St. Louis thought that he would not win, but he won a seat at the State House and he went to Jefferson City. That's a part of Pulitzer's life that that I had no idea about. What's noteworthy about his time as a politician? Well, what's interesting about newspapers and politics is that uh, they they people who were politicians at that time owned newspapers. And they didn't necessarily relinquish them uh, when they when they became politicians. They they held on to them. And Pulitzer was already uh, working at the Westlich Post, and he continued to to do so uh, from his seat in Jefferson City. And I don't know if he was there year round or whatever, but but he wanted to change things. He wanted to uh, be 
a mover and a shaker. And clearly, he was a mover and a shaker, and he could do that both as a politician but also as a newspaper man. And further than that, he could further his legislation that he proposed in Jefferson City in the newspaper itself. So uh, he, he got into trouble right away with people because he was challenging the status quo with, with people who had state, uh, what do you call it, state project funding for projects, one of them digging a well which uh, apparently uh, went down very far because they got paid by the foot. Uh, In another case, and and this very person, he wrote about this in his paper, and the man uh, confronted him, and Joseph had a temper, was known to have a temper, and pulled out a a gun and, and tried to shoot him. Luckily, he did not, and famously was then appointed police commissioner of St. Louis. I'm talking with Oren Rudofsky, director and producer of Joseph Pulitzer, Voice of the People. It premieres on 9 PBS this Friday at 8. We'll be back in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back. I'm talking with Oren Rudofsky, director and producer of Joseph Pulitzer, Voice of the People. So what happens after he serves his time in Jefferson City? Well, he um, in in St. Louis, he he somehow is able to uh, gain partial ownership of the Westlich Post. He borrows money. He he's a good investor. Apparently, invested on I think uh, one of the bridges going the Eads Eads Bridge, bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that proved to be I don't know how, but a wise investment. <laughs> um, and then uh, from the Westlich Post. There was the St. Louis Post and the St. Louis Dispatch. They were separate newspapers, and they were being sold at bankruptcy for really low rates. And he somehow managed to get ownership of both of those and combine them to create the uh, Post-Dispatch. Which was originally called the St. Louis Post and Dispatch, but was uh, shortly changed to exclude the and, and it just became the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And in three years, just three years' time after Joseph Pulitzer had uh, bought them and merged them, it became the number one circulating newspaper in the city. How did it become number one? Well, he was a great storyteller, and and, uh, apparently he was a great—he loved Dickens. And I think the key to understanding a lot about Joseph Pulitzer is to think about um, Charles Dickens, who understands— that people are interested in both the upper classes and the lower classes and is not afraid to tell stories about how things really are for people and, and, and just understands how to hook, hook an audience, hook a reader with a story. So that, that's what he did uh, in, in the newspapers. And he, he, so he's a great storyteller. He also took on the... Uh, the rich and wealthy who weren't used to, were used to seeing their names in the paper written about their their parties or in the society pages, but weren't used to being called out for not uh, paying their taxes. And when somebody prints the names of the rich and rich who are not paying their taxes, well, lots of people want to read those stories and find out uh, how what happened and what they didn't pay and what they were worth and all that kind of thing. So he kind of, he, he, he believed in, uh, he liked apparently making enemies. He didn't mind making enemies. 
And uh, so he wrote about people in the paper and his circulation went up and he also uh, learned about advertising and right at the beginning of when department stores are, are around and need to advertise in the newspaper. And he, he was an excellent marketer of his newspaper and he was an excellent businessman. And I believe that's how he became the number one news, the Post-Dispatch became the number one newspaper. So he's still in St. Louis. He marries a woman named Kate Davis. They have two girls and one boy here in the city. Uh, and uh, throughout his career, Pulitzer was known as a workhorse. He was known as an insomniac. He spent a ton of time at the office. What was he like as a family man? Well, again, uh, it depends who you read and what you read. But apparently, uh, they, they did have seven children. Two of them died. Um, so he was at home at least part of the time. We know that. Um, but um, he was known at the beginning to be very devoted to his family. And I believe he was very concerned throughout his life with his family, but also uh, he was a workaholic. So how much time he spent at home, I believe, when his business grew, he spent less and less time at home, and he was known to drive his reporters and his staff to distraction because he was always demanding more from them. And, and, and he also demanded more from his sons. So he was an equal opportunity, uh, difficult person to be around. He becomes wealthy in St. Louis because he has the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He's figured out how to make money off of advertising. But then there were some certain circumstances that led Pulitzer to leave St. Louis for New York. And we have another clip from the film. He decides it's time to leave St. Louis when his managing editor shoots somebody who's been critical of the paper and the politics, and this man dies. At 5.15 p.m., Slayback walked into the Post-Dispatch office. He had called the paper a blackmailing sheet and had bitterly attacked all persons connected with it. Some pretty violent times there. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, those, were the, those were the good old days. Um, uh, when, when, uh, when guns were, everybody apparently had, had guns, which doesn't happen anymore, does it? But, um, <laughs> kidding there. Um, but, um, his newspaper didn't mind calling people out and, uh, was very careful most of the time to get the facts straight, but people didn't always appreciate that. And this man, uh, felt like the newspaper had slandered him and went into the office and the, the editor uh, had, a, had a gun in his drawer and, and shot at him when he lunged at, when, when Slayback lunged at him. And, uh, and in this case, the man, the man died. That's one of the reasons Pulitzer then uh, went to New York, but Pulitzer was already thinking about New York. New York was clearly the, the big city, the, the place to really be on the national stage, and that's what he really was aspiring towards. What does he do when he gets there? Well, he's he's already been scoping out the newspaper scene there, and actually his one surviving brother, Albert, uh, it's a long story, but he, he is a publisher himself of a paper called The Morning Journal. But Pulitzer has his eye on a paper called The New York World, and uh, he manages at this time uh, uh, 
to buy the paper, he takes out a loan for an astronomical amount, $400,000, which seems uh, even a lot today, for sure, um, and, and gets ownership of the paper, changes it from the New York world to the world. So that gives you a sense of his aspirations. And uh, very quickly, it becomes the number one newspaper in New York and has a larger cir circulation, apparently, than any newspaper in the world. Uh, and he does this with crusades, um, that he, he interests people in the same kinds of stories he's telling in St. Louis, but as he, as he describes it, there are stories in New York, they're plentiful as mushrooms, he says, and stories about real people, but also uh, the Statue of Liberty has been sent as a gift by the uh, French to New York, and there's no pedestal for it to stand on. And so he does the first crowdfunding uh, campaign and has his readers contribute nickels, dimes, and pennies to, the, to, to fund it, and he puts their names in the paper. But sometimes a day or two later, so people kept having to buy the paper. To see their names in it. Exactly. He's brilliant that way, and he's brilliant in that he understands that a story can't just be told one day. It has to be carried out over several days. So, you, so just like Dickens was serialized in the paper, he is, in effect, telling stories that won't complete right away. If you read part one, you're going to want to read part two, three, four, and five. And they have several editions of the paper every day. So people become readers of the paper and want to know what happens next. And he uses the paper to advocate. There's a story in the film about a bridge. Can you share that with us? Yeah. Well, the Brooklyn, he, he arrives, uh, the newspaper publishing houses were all located downtown uh, Park Row in, in New York, uh, right next to where the Brooklyn Bridge, the first bridge that, that links uh, New York to Brooklyn, is built. And uh, which is still standing, it's my favorite bridge. But, but, and it's still it's free to this day. But in Pulitzer's day, they uh, put put a toll on it, and he attacked that toll with editorials, and he had images of it, and he, and and he said, let the bridge be free. He advocated for a free bridge for the working men and women who were now walking across the bridge to work in Manhattan. We have another clip from the film about how Pulitzer used the world to really change the business of journalism and the newspaper industry. Pulitzer helped convince Americans that they had to become a nation of uh, newspaper readers, that reading that paper was like having your first cup of coffee, that the day was not complete without the paper. The newspaper became a habit. It was the key to the city. If you have come from afar, if you don't speak this language, buy this newspaper. This is going to be a way in. Joseph Pulitzer was really a smart man. <laughs> he was brilliant. And, and he brought on uh, famed reporter Nellie Bly. Yes. Uh, because uh, she was able to deliver some type of scoop, uh, which was requisite for her to get a position at the world. And uh, one of the most famous stories that she reported on was immersing herself in an uh, insane asylum and exposing that corruption. Did that really, is that the story that endeared herself to readers? 
Well, there's also the famous Nellie Bly uh, uh, around the world in uh, beating Jules Verne's record, uh, but but that that which was came a, later on. Which came later on, yes. But that was you know she had already worked in some in in other very small newspapers, not in New York, and and that story apparently. Uh, endeared her to readers, but I think endeared her to Pulitzer, who saw that she was just the kind of storyteller. Not only was she exposing corruption and how the asylums were were run in a pretty shoddy way, but uh, but but she told she knew how to tell a good story, and that and and she put her put herself on the line in the way that. Reporters are still doing to this day. That's the hallmark of great reporters: is putting themselves in in danger's way and uh, and and getting getting the scoop in effect. And she did manage to get the city to uh, to put more funds towards improving uh, life in the asylum. Though apparently a lot of those funds were skimmed off the top, so it wasn't a complete victory. But but she got she got the job. So we know that Joseph Pulitzer is successful in New York. Uh, he's been successful everywhere he goes, it seems. But then William Randolph Hearst enters the picture. And for people who don't know, who was Hearst? Well, William Randolph Hearst's uh, father was a miner, a silver miner in the West and got extreme, very rich doing that. And he moved to San Francisco and started the San Francisco Chronicle, I think. Sounds right. Um, and uh, his son, uh, like all rich men's sons of the day, uh, they didn't they didn't have to cheat to get into Harvard, but they got in regardless of whether they should have been there or not. Um, and uh, so um, uh, so Hearst was at Harvard, but apparently he was very interested in the newspaper business. And um, and he loved what Pulitzer was doing with the world, and he wanted to emulate that. And he got his mother or father to uh, to put up the money. There was endless money to start a newspaper, and he bought the paper that actually had been owned, the Morning Journal, by Pulitzer's uh, brother, uh, who had sold it previously, and he uh, took on. Joseph Pulitzer, by uh, his first his first move was to hire away much of Pulitzer's staff because he could afford to pay them more and do what wasn't really done at the time, which give them long term contracts. And a newspaper war breaks out. Yeah, well, there, there, there. He he takes uh, Pulitzer's uh, editors and and journalists and also uh, cartoonists who had a series called The Yellow Kid, which was quite popular. And, and I learned that that's where the term yellow journalism comes from. I knew what yellow journalism is, but I didn't know the story behind it. Yeah, well, I think also apparently yellow was the first color that newspapers could print, or they would just, you know, that was the first color you'd see in the paper. Um, and uh, so Pulitzer did then uh, get a, a second cartoonist to do another Yellow Kid. So there were competing Yellow Kids. But Who they, was the Yellow Kid? Uh, the Yellow Kid was a, a um, well, one of the things we didn't talk about was the fact that Pulitzer wanted not just to report what happened among circles of the wealthy, but 
among the vast immigrant population in New York, which at this point was really, you know, becoming a central force in, in growing the city of New York, but also becoming newspaper readers themselves. And the Yellow Kid was a Lower East Side character who is hard to characterize what he looks like. Um, but he's sort of this puny uh, guy who wears this yellow cloak and reports on what's happening in the neighborhood, in Hogan's Alley is, is, is what it's called in the paper. And uh, so he, he is the first thing people would read on a, on a Sunday, and, and the paper would be wrapped in that cartoon. And you can imagine that that was quite popular. And so, uh, so he, he gave you your first bit of news, and then you read the front page of Pulitzer's paper, which was filled with both news about what was going on in politics and uncovering stories, but also uh, news that some might call sensationalist, but news about real people and real struggles. I mean, one of the stories that sticks with me that's not in the film is of this guy named Alexander Baum, who just has been worked to death at his job and, and goes home and has a nervous breakdown. And, and it, it's, it's a horrible story, and it's a story that was true to people's experience who were being worked to the bone, who had seven children at home and couldn't afford them. So this newspaper war between Hearst and Pulitzer, it escalates and I'd say really reaches its pinnacle during the Spanish-American War shortly before the turn of the century. Explain how that carried out, because they really started to print falsehoods. Yeah, well, uh, what what happened, um, there was a battleship, the Maine, which people at least, uh, many people know the expression, remember the Maine, if not anything about it, which, which started the uh, Spanish-American War when... Um, when the main uh, was in was in the Cuban harbor, and it inexplicably blew up, and immediately Hearst papers said that the Spanish, who owned all this territory, who controlled all this territory, even though the Cubans were already there were attempts to gain independence in all these territories, uh, this he accused Hearst accused the Spanish of planting mines or or blowing it up. Uh, with no evidence at all. And uh, Pulitzer's paper held back for a day, <laughs> but by the next day they were, they had put a question mark to how it blew up, but then they just joined in the fray without any uh, evidence. And then both papers, uh, again led by Hearst, started calling for the U.S. to go to war with, with the Spanish. And that, that's in fact what, what happened. Um, and and so the papers started um, making accusations and and falsehoods, really things that they couldn't they they couldn't um, verify. Uh, and this was sort of a black period for the newspapers, uh, and they did it because of their the, the competition they were engaged in. But of course. Uh, it, it wasn't the way uh, Pulitzer used to have signs, had signs up in his newspaper that said, accuracy, accuracy, accuracy. And this was inaccuracy, inaccuracy, inaccuracy. And he later regretted uh, what his newspaper did. And um, it was around this time that he decided to uh, fund the Columbia School of Journalism 
and uh, came up with the idea of the Pulitzer Prizes. He was interested in professionalizing uh, the newspaper uh, industry. Hearst never regretted uh, the decision he made, or he never said it out loud. He never admitted to any wrongdoing, whereas Pulitzer, to his credit, did. And, and that's where the term yellow journalism comes from. And, uh, and as we know, the, this is the first time Pulitzer uses the term fake news to say I, that that is a no-no. I do not believe in reporting fake news. And, 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 and that is something uh, that, of course, today resonates because newspapers are being accused of it every single day, along with all other forms of media. Now, there's plenty more that we could talk about, including a Supreme Court decision that was a battle between Pulitzer and President Teddy Roosevelt. But we have to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we'll skip ahead a few years. I'm talking with Oren Radowski, the director and producer of Joseph Pulitzer, Voice of the People. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. I'm Alex Hoyer. I'm talking with Oren Radowski, director and producer of Joseph Pulitzer, Voice of the People. It premieres on 9 PBS this Friday night at 8. So we fast forward a few years, and uh, Pulitzer's health is declining, and at this time he becomes concerned about what's going to happen to his wealth when he dies. And he's specifically concerned about his heirs, his children, the people who are going to inherit his fortune. Why? Inherit his fortune and his newspapers, and I think, and I think his concern was uh, for the tradition, uh, for his reputation, but the reputation of his newspapers. He had the St. Louis Post Dispatch, and he had the New York World, and he really cared about his legacy, and he didn't, he didn't trust that uh, people as wealthy as his children, children now were his male heirs inherited the papers. The, the women were not given an opportunity and not expected to, uh, sadly. But um, so he, he wanted to make sure, he, he sent his son, who he thought was the ne'er-do-well, uh, to St. Louis to get straightened out. Well, it turned out that his heir uh, and his namesake, who came to uh, St. Louis, did a great job and worked very hard once he was here and, and learned at, at the feet of, of, of great editors and, uh, who, who basically ran the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. So, uh, so Pulitzer, till the very end, uh, wanted to make clear to his children the dangers of wealth. He was extraordinarily wealthy, and he knew from other people's children around him what, what often happened to the children of the wealthy, which is uh, that their fathers uh, made their fortune and the next generations spent that fortune. And the Pulitzer name continued with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for many, many more years, but was sold in 2005 uh, to Lee Enterprises. And I think a lot of people in St. Louis would say that that impact is still being felt and not for the better? Well, um, I know the newspaper industry right after 2005, a few years later, really had a precipitous fall. Um, the internet and, and, and the lack of advertising is, is 
much of what uh, much of what killed it, um, and um, there wasn't another Pulitzer heir who uh, people felt or the family felt, and that could take could take over, and th that's my understanding of it. I know it's I know it's very complicated, but I, I'm not sure it's uh, exactly fair. Uh, no, knowing what we know now about the newspaper business, who's to know what would have happened had uh, the income remained there, whether it would have been necessary or as it seems to be necessary in some cases to decimate, in some cases, the staff of, of newspapers. And it's happening all over the country in very prestigious papers where that where the same story didn't play out exactly the same way and in and in local papers where which have really been hurting by the hurt by the lack of advertising income so i think it's i think it's a complicated story but um luckily some of the major newspapers in our country have uh survived by actually in reinvesting in the papers um, New York Times has become a national newspaper in a way that it, that technology has allowed it to become. Uh, the Washington Post, of course, has Jeff Be Bezos funding it and and as the publisher, and the LA Times similarly has somebody like that. So uh, I would just like to say that uh, I would challenge uh, some wealthy American who might be listening to invest not in a famous newspaper, but in the hundreds and thousands of small local papers, which need some a benefactor to keep them alive, because those are the papers that that tell the that do the investigative reporting that nobody else does. What happens at a school board meeting, or you know some local meeting, or where there's corruption in a small town, that's that's the meat and potatoes of of local and any city newspaper. And I will say that the legacy of the Pulitzer family in St. Louis remains strong. Uh, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, despite not being at the level of staff that it once was, is still an excellent newspaper. Emily Rao Pulitzer has, uh, still lives in St. Louis and uh, um, continues to donate to worthwhile causes. Uh, St. St. Louis Public Radio included, uh, by, for full disclosure, but... Uh, the Pulitzer family wealth has done a lot of good for this community. Well, not just you know her her Pulitzer Foundation, the that beautiful art uh, space she's created, but also uh, nationally and internationally at the Pulitzer Center on crisis reporting. So, you know the the involvement remains and the dedication to progressive uh, journalism uh, remains. What kind of response has the film received? Uh, I've been really thrilled with the response to the film. We've been accepted to and, and played the film at a whole bunch of film festivals. We got a unexpected, uh, limited uh, theatrical release in New York and Los Angeles and a few other places. Um, so uh, it's been embraced, as I didn't expect, by uh, Jewish film festivals as well, uh, because Pulitzer was Jewish. Uh, he he married a, an Episcopalian woman, and none of the family has has stayed with the Jewish faith. But but it's resonated with with Jewish audiences. And interestingly, uh, there's been uh, a little you know there's been a few times a critique, which I think 
was a blind spot in a way, perhaps for us, which uh, from uh, a few a African Americans who have seen the film, who have questioned uh, why we didn't discuss the inherent racism and sexism of the era. And Pulitzer was a man of his times, and he did not have anybody on his staff who was African American or probably any person of color. He did have a few women working on his staff, notably Nellie Bly. Um, so, uh, so that was one uh, critique of of the film. Also, that within the pages of the paper, he didn't emphasize. Although he was progressive, he was progressive for his era, which meant there were very few people who could prophesy uh, that the issues which which were in the air, you know, Supreme Court cases about separate but equal. I think that's Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, he reported all these things, but he didn't uh, rail, he didn't make a crusade out of them. He, he didn't advocate for them like he advocated for a free bridge or for the pedestal under the Statue of Liberty. Or for immigrants' living conditions, for the, for the betterment of living conditions uh, in New York or, or for those who were in asylums. Uh, so, you know, but then again, he, that was not unusual even among progressives. Uh, so, so but, but nevertheless, I think it's a point that probably uh, would have been worth making in some way in the film. And that's, you know, one thing I, I wish uh, if I could do it over again, I would have added something about because it, it's, a, it's, it's certainly a legitimate uh, critique. What is the thing that surprised you the most? making this film? Wow. Um, I think what surprised me the most about making this film is when I started, I, I knew Pulitzer was an interesting person, and I knew that his journalism was groundbreaking. But I, I had no idea that this uh, uh, Hungarian Jewish immigrant story would be as, as pertinent to today as it is. I had no idea that immigration would be the big issue, that uh, First Amendment rights would be the big issue, that uh, telling accuracy in journalism would be the big issue, that, 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 that the press would be denigrated the way it is. And so I just believe that uh, Pulitzer is a story for, for our time. What do you think Joseph Pulitzer would have done today had he been born in today's times? I, I was thinking about that same question and was wondering if he may have been uh, the Jack Dorsey, who's a St. Louis native, the guy that founded Twitter. Uh, would, would he have been in technology or would he have been in journalism? What, what do you think? Well, he was very interested in technology and he made sure to be ahead of his times in terms of uh, and in terms of the technology of printing papers, he he trumpeted the the new Ho Press that he got H O U G H that he got in in his uh, newspapers. He built the biggest uh, skyscraper in New York and the World Building, uh, which was unrivaled for for a few years. And he he wanted to make his mark in that way. Uh, and he put color in the paper. He he in terms of what a newspaper was. He understood how to use advertising. So I think he was a great businessman. He was interested in technology. He was interested in storytelling. Uh, so it's that great unknown thing that geniuses create. So 
who knows what it would have been, but maybe he would have been the one to figure out how to keep newspapers economically viable. And uh, I certainly know that he would have challenged uh, challenged uh, politicians and local residents who he didn't feel were doing what what should be done for our country and for our democracy. I want to note finally that the film is narrated by Adam Driver, the guy that plays Kylo Ren in Star Wars, was in the recent uh, Black Klansman uh, film. And the voice of Joseph Pulitzer is Lee Schreiber, who uh, portrayed Boston Globe editor uh, Marty Baron in the 2015 film that won the Academy Award Spotlight. And I have to imagine that, that there's a connection between that. Absolutely. Well, uh, I, I not only just uh, know, uh, superficially know Liev uh, from, from a way back, um, and, um, but, but the spotlight, of course, that, that connection made it. And also, uh, Liev comes from a Hungarian uh, Jewish background uh, himself. So that, that sort of sealed the deal. And Adam Driver came along and, and just was, how, how, can, how can you turn down Adam Driver? And he, he was a sweetheart and, and fabulous to work with. I've been talking with Oren Rudowski, the director and producer of Joseph Pulitzer, Voice of the People. It premieres on 9 PBS this Friday at 8, and I saw it not too long ago, and it was an excellent film. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This was a real treat. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.